Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So I think the first step as a listener is to recognize why are you asking people questions? Are you asking them for your need to know, to respond, or their need for you to know? This is an important point. When someone passes away, what's the first question we usually ask about it? How did it happen? How did it happen? Was it a suicide? Was it cancer? Was it sudden? Did you have notice? Was it a train wreck? What does it matter? It doesn't matter. It's usually because we're uncomfortable. We're incapable of filling in the, the silence, right? We just we, we got to kind of get in there and we're, we're not quite sure what to say. Don't say anything. Or maybe just say, I'm sorry, or how are you? Maybe it was a relief. People will tell you what they need for you to know. So for your listeners, I'd really challenge you. If you want to become a better listener, check back in every two or three seconds. Recognize that distractions are human and they're not getting less. They're going to exponentiate. Second, recognize that when you're probing, when you're evaluating, when you're interpreting, it comes from a good place, but it's usually not helpful if you're trying to build relationships. Ask yourself the next time you're tempted to ask someone a question, why do I need to know that? Now, there's times to ask questions, right? All of us have been taught to peel the onion and get to the root cause. I, I get that that's a skill, and I'm quite adept at that. That's not a skill to employ if you believe in the value of relationships. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Scott, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for the platform today. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about your book, Management Mess um, to Leadership Success. And, you know, I knew that you had worked at Franklin Covey and, you know, we've basically been exposed to a lot of this information through different sources. But you guys really are kind of the go-to source. You and, you know, a handful of people, I think it's, it's you and David Allen really are kind of the go-to source of all of this material about how to be more effective, you know, in our lives, and our workplace, all of which I want to get into. But before we do that, um, I want to start by asking you a question that I think is uh, very relevant given the nature of your work, and that is, um, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? Oh, no question for my mother. My mother was a stay-at-home mom, right? She's still alive. My parents have been married for, I think, maybe 55 years now. But I saw my mother read the newspaper every morning of my life from like probably kindergarten through college. I'd come out of bed, come into the kitchen. My mother would make my brother and I breakfast every morning, like hot breakfast, you know, pancakes and, and eggs and bacon. And my mother was reading the Orlando Sentinel. We, we lived in central Florida. And so every morning, seven days a week for 18 years, my mother inculturated in me, maybe accidentally, the value of reading and the correlation between reading and your vocabulary and your vocabulary and your ability to think. 
and digest information and to build your ability to communicate. So I would attribute my love for reading, my love for writing to watching my mother read the newspaper every day at 7 a.m. as a stay-at-home mom. It's had an indelible imprint on my passion and I think really my career success. Hmm. What about your dad? My dad was a hard worker. He was an illustrator at a defense contractor. His father died when he was 10. His twin brother caught polio back in the 50s, lived for a decade in an iron lung, died when he was 26. And so my, my father had a, a rough upbringing, you know, kind of without two parents. His mother kind of went into mourning, so to speak. So I learned from my dad probably the appreciation for having parents, having them around. And my father was a super hard worker. My father worked just thousands of hours of overtime to provide for his family. And I think my strong work ethic has come from my father. Yeah. So that imprint of, of learning how to love to read, uh, I know for a fact that, you know, from having read your bio, you did some work uh, in K through 12 schools um, when you started at, at Franklin Covey. But um, the thing that I, that I wonder, you know, I remember very distinctly a certain point at which reading stopped being this thing that I did for pleasure and it started to become an assignment. And uh, I don't know, you know, we might be close in age, but I remember when I was in third grade, you would get a free pizza, personal pizza if you could read X number of books in a month. And that was my motivation. And it wasn't until I finished college that I picked up a book again out of genuine interest. And it's funny because I can tell you, I am pretty sure I've probably read more books in the last year than I have in my entire professional uh, and personal life combined uh, up until I was like 21, 22. Why do you think that is? I mean, you've worked in our education system. Like, why have we not put the kind of information that you're talking about uh, into our schools? And what do you think uh, is wrong with our current education system? Which I realize implicit in that question is the fact that I think something is wrong with it. Um, but at, given your perspective, how would you update it to prepare people for the workforce that they're entering? Well, I might start by putting the focus on the family. I, I think it's your parents and it's your home environment that creates a love for reading. I don't know that it's educators as much that have the responsibility for modeling to our kids. I think we put too much responsibility in the school. I mean, it's my responsibility to make sure my kids know right from wrong, and that they know the difference between strong values and weak values and strong character. It's my job to imprint what I want my children to learn. So I, I might flip the script and say, I think reading starts in the home. Look at me. I mean, my, my wife is a passionate reader. My oldest son, I have three boys, five, seven, and nine. My oldest son is a voracious reader through no correlation to his education. He goes to the finest private school in Utah, but they're not teaching him his passion for reading. My boy and I go to Barnes and Noble every Saturday as an adventure. We go to have Mexican food at lunch. We play tennis and we go to Barnes and Noble. And for us, Barnes and Noble is kind of like our library. We go and we read and we buy books and we, you know, talk about them. So I don't know that I can address what's right or wrong with the education system. I think people as young boys and girls, they do a lot of what they see in their parents for good and bad. And I wouldn't underestimate the value, the impact that we have as parents onto our children. We know we, we enculturate into our kids as teachers, as administrators, as parents, deeply ingrained paradigms on how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see the value of reading, whether we see junk food as normal food, whether we see education as valuable. So I would probably flip it, Siri, and say, I think that parents have a, a vastly disproportionate influence on our kids' passion and ability to read than even in school. 
Yeah. What, um, what kinds of books do you have your, your son reading and two, what kind of career advice are you giving your kids at this age? Because one of the things that comes from being in the culture that I grew up in is, you know, a very, very clear idea of what your potential career options are, all of which people have heard me say, it's like doctor, lawyer, engineer, you're Indian. Um, we're taught to choose the options that have been put in front of us to the point where we are blinded by the possibilities that surround us. And I don't blame my parents for that because they grew up in an environment where there were two alternatives. One is security, the other is poverty. There was no in between. Their lives were their potential lives were binary as immigrants in India because that's what they saw. So obviously we live in a very different world today. Um, what I mean, what do you tell your kids about this world? Yeah, so I don't encourage my kids to read one form over another. Because I mean, they don't read books about murder and shooting. We don't have guns in our house. Beyond that, yeah. I want my kids to love reading for reading's sake. So my oldest son is kind of into historical fiction. He's reading a book right now about the Berlin Wall. And although it's a school assignment, he got to pick it out at uh, the Barnes & Noble store. So I think my oldest son is going to be a lifelong reader. My middle son, who's kind of my twin, both in looks and personality, hates reading. He wants to play video games on the Nintendo Switch. So I made a deal with him. Every minute on the Nintendo is earned by a minute reading. And so I watch him. We time him, 20-minute intervals. And he's actually building a better um, you know, lifestyle around that. When it comes to our careers, you know, I, I've always been a fan of running with your strengths. I think the work that Tom Rath and Don Clifton did at Gallup with Now Discover Your Strengths has been enormously liberating for people in the last 20 years to really recognize what are their strengths and how to run with those and make those um, work for them. You know, for me, my career is just a wandering cluster bomb. I mean, I started working in middle school, right? Mowing lawns, raking lawns, washing cars, washing windows. And I became uh, a manager at a restaurant and I washed pans and, and, and waited on tables and drove the bakery van. And then I worked for Disney for four years. And here I am now as a best-selling author and a podcaster and a keynote speaker. None of those were, you know, a linear path by any stretch. I think my parents probably saw me more like they wished my brother's career would be. My brother is a chemical engineer. He has an MBA from MIT. He has an, a master's in chemical engineering, very linear path. And I think my parents probably saw that as the right path for me. To their horror, I chose a different path. I mean, I was working on Senate campaigns back when I was 16. I was working for a US presidential campaign when I was 18. And so I've done, I, I earned a real estate license when I was 18. I, I've done a ton of different things, none of which did I ever think would lead to where I am now as a best-selling author and as an executive in a public leadership company. But all those things together really taught me the difference between being a specialist, which is my brother, and being a generalist, which is me. And I think hmm. any advice I would give to people early in their career, I think much of the world puts people into these specialist frameworks, models. You're either going to be an anesthesiologist, you're going to be a law enforcement officer, you're going to be a librarian or a dental hygienist. And for anybody who doesn't fit in that role as a specialist, like my brother, my brother is an extraordinarily talented specialist. He was the CEO of two Amazon companies. I'm the opposite of him. I'm a generalist, right? I, I had a sales background, a marketing background. I become a fairly proficient writer. I'm a columnist for Inc. Magazine. I hosted a radio program on iHeartRadio. While I was doing all these things, I didn't know I was a generalist. I was still kind of jealous of my friends who were patent attorneys and who were OBGYNs and mechanical engineers. But then I came to realize, like literally in the last three or four years, oh, wow, 
that 30 years of sort of wandering around as a generalist, not quite knowing what it is I did and what I was great at, it all began to come together in my late 40s and now early 50s. And I would never be in the influential position I'm in now to be a guest on your podcast had I just been a specialist. So my advice to parents, to people who are planning their careers, don't plan it so carefully. Maybe understand, are you a specialist? Are you a generalist? I think the generalist track pays off later in life. And I don't want to put people into one of the two boxes per se, but for me, it's a great framework to think about where do your passions lie? What do you need to do to uncover them and and kind of pollinate them? And if they don't come clearly to you in your 20s and 30s, that's okay because mine didn't. If you would have asked me 10 years ago, was I going to be a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and a podcast host of one of the largest podcasts in the world and a radio host at iHeartRadio? I'd say, no, I'm a chief marketing officer. No, I'm the hot behind the scenes guy. I'm the producer. I'm the director. I'm not the actor. But I think it took a different mm. direction and I'm glad it did. Yeah, I can relate. It's funny because I think that I look at my life and I kind of, you know, followed this linear path and it all kind of blew up in my face. And I would say, okay, well, this is, you know, the byproduct of a life that hasn't gone according to plan. It's all been, you know, through a series of fortunate accidents, graduating into two recessions, uh, getting fired from every real job I've ever had, which I, you know, given your perspective, I, I want to actually, you know, talk to you about it, but through the lens of your book. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we had David Epstein here, which, you know, listening to you talk about uh, generalist versus specialist, he actually talked about that and talked about why generalists will actually start to thrive in a specialized world. So it, it's uh, it's an interesting um, perspective. I interviewed David on my podcast and his book Range, I think, gave mm. me permission to be comfortable, be confident, to be obsessed yeah. with the value of being a generalist. I, I, uh, unfortunately, it took me till like, age 51 to really appreciate that. But it's David that gave me permission to be, like I said, um, an evangelist of the value of generalists. Yeah. So one of the things I wonder, uh, you know, when I look back at my job history, I realized that I was a creative person who never got to do a creative job. And I had a mentor who once said, he's like, if you mismatch talent and environment, you're going to get piss poor results, which is, you know, no surprise. And so why do you think that is like, why has it taken us so long to figure out, you know, to hire people based on strengths, to put them in roles where they'll thrive? Uh, Because I feel like, you know, it's kind of just shooting in the dark, at least, you know, 20, 25 years ago when I graduated from college, it was, hey, these are the options. Um, Hopefully you don't suck at them. I think for I think for too many decades, uh, the marketplace really valued the left brain thinker. I, I think you know the majority of the jobs coming out of college were left brain oriented. I mean, I don't think liberal arts colleges got a fair shake up until probably the last decade or two decades or such. But I would strongly advise and encourage my children, my three boys, to go to a liberal arts school and get a liberal arts education. I think it's I think Dan Pink helped to popularize the rise of the right brain in, in one of his early books and how I think now organizations are valuing, if not as much more than left brain linear analytical skills, what they're valuing is conflict resolution, the ability to articulate and communicate and be persuasive in your thoughts and your words and your language, to build relationships, to be a trustworthy person. I mean, you kind of you can you can't really teach character later in life. You can teach competence. But character is a fundamental leadership trait that I think also comes with right brain passions is understanding who's made been successful, who's, who's failed, and what do you learn from those? I think organizations are now swinging rapidly to what we call 
these sort of soft skills, which are in fact human skills. They're not soft skills, right? Give me someone that has a, a strong work ethic, that's self-aware, that has the ability to apologize and recognize how they work well or don't work well with others, and I can teach them almost any skill. I mean, I could be the leader of the neurology division at a hospital without knowing the first thing about you know, neuroscientists, as long as I can understand how to lift and unleash the passions and talents of neuroscientists and of neurologists. I think these right brain skills are sweeping the nation in organizations. Nearly every leader will tell you their biggest problem is getting people to work well together. But I, I would debunk this HR theme that is often heard people are an organization's most valuable asset. That is not true. People are not an organization's most valuable asset. It is the relationships between people that is your killer app, that is your competitive advantage. Because you can have a, a Rhodes Scholar sitting over here and a master black belt Six Sigma expert over here. But if they can't get along, if they can't collaborate, if they can't communicate, if they can't forgive each other, if they can't pre-forgive each other, and know how to complement each other's passions and talents and skills, I don't need you. So I, I think the ultimate competitive advantage for any company is going to be making sure that we value these right brain skills, these communication skills, the ability to work well with other people, find common ground is going to be a 21st century skill that everybody needs. So we know a lot of you have been listening to us for years, and it means the world to us. What we do here at The Unmistakable Creative wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners. If the podcast has been valuable to you, one of the best ways you can support us is to subscribe to Unmistakable Creative Prime, which gives you access to transcripts, all of our courses, monthly coaching calls, live chats with our guests, and an incredible community of creatives. And it costs less than you spend on a cup of coffee every month. For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. Let's get into the book. Um, you, you talk about this idea of becoming the leader that you want to follow. And obviously, you know, we start with ourselves. And I think one of the first things you talked about is scarcity. And you said it's human nature to feel scarcity when we fear we won't have enough money, um, you know, status, attention, whatever it is, right? To fill in the blank. Like all the things that we all feel are not available to us um, in abundance. How do you begin to unwind that? Because I, I think that everybody listening to this feels scarcity in some area of their life. It is. It's a, and it can be a little bit of a Pollyannish idea. I'm going to use my wife as an example. I do not trash talk my wife. But in the next minute, I'm going to use her as an example of something that even she could grow upon. My wife is younger than I am. She's uh, about 38 years old. I'm 51. And she was raised in a fairly affluent upper middle class family back in the 80s, one of five kids. Mother was primarily stay at home and did not lack for resources, went to private school, went to public college. And my wife is a very scarce person. You, you would have thought she'd been raised in a bankrupt family or that her father had not been loyal or honored his marital vows. It's not true. My wife, for being very talented and very uh, well-educated, she's a fairly scarce person. And she's happy to, quote, let you have your share, but she kind of has to get hers first. I think it comes from some deep-rooted insecurity. I don't know what it is because in my family, we've been successful. My wife and I have, you know, a healthy income and we're not, you know, want of a lot of material things. We don't have all of our luxuries, but, you know, we have a comfortable life. And so I don't know really 
how it's rooted in everybody. My sense is it comes from some upbringing that we all have. I was actually raised in a very abundant family. My grandmother, my father's mother, when her oldest son was uh, afflicted with polio, we're, we're Catholic and we continue to be Catholic. And my grandmother was a devout Catholic and the Knights of Columbus came by and offered to pay for the cost of the iron lung for my father's twin brother. And my mother tells this story that she heard from relatives that my grandmother said, no, go pay for the iron lung down the street. I can afford it. Now, she was a widow. She worked in the lunchroom at the local state like mental hospital. She couldn't afford to pay for her son's iron lung. But somehow, the values that she was growing up with on this Minnesota farm was an abundance mentality. So somehow, she scraped together the funds for this iron lung and it said and sent the Knights of Columbus on their way down to a less fortunate family. My grandmother was not a, a wealthy woman, but she had an abundance mentality. And that story has stayed with me through my entire life. So I think it's probably the stories we tell. It's the paradigms that our, that our parents enculturate in us. So I wonder what is the story that my wife was told by her family and parents that has created in her somewhat of a scarce mentality. Do not underestimate the impact that parents have on your children and that leaders have on their teams. Even adults, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s are still having their own paradigms warped by leaders who teach them incomplete or inaccurate or unfulfilled paradigms. Uh, so we'll get into paradigms because it's funny to hear you talk about scarcity in this way. I was, I was having a conversation with my roommate the other day and I said, you know, like people like us, we go on Amazon to buy something like the, literally the headphones that I'm wearing. I needed new headphones for an audio interface. And I, I couldn't help but thinking about something Naval Ravikant said in this like epic podcast that he did on how to get rich. He said, in every decision, the thing you should be considering is your time. At, and I remember thinking, I was like, okay, you know what? If this were a couple of weeks ago, I would have literally sat here and looked through every headphone, you know, pair of headphones for saving $3. These are $32. All the rest are $29. And these are marked as the best seller. <laughs> and I, I noticed that. I was like, wait a minute. Like what? For $3, that's not going to make any difference. And yet I, I couldn't believe how many times in my life I've sat around and done that. Yeah, I don't do that. <laughs> but I but I appreciate the wisdom you just offered. It probably came to me from having three sons because my time is at a premium now, right? Speaking <laughs> yeah, and, and raising three children. My, my, my most important role in life is as father now, tied with spouse. So I'm extraordinarily deliberate on how I use my time. And I'll tell you something that I've implemented in my life that your listeners might actually appreciate. I I, every hour on the hour, at the top of the hour, from 4 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day, those are the hours I'm awake, 4 a.m. to 9 p.m. I'm never awake after 10.01 in the evening, like never. And I'm always awake at 4.01 in the morning. It's when I write in the morning. I ask myself every hour on the hour, at the top of the hour, is the next hour going to be the highest use of my time? Is how I'm planning to spend the next hour going to bring me the biggest return, my clients, my family, my CEO, whoever I'm indebted to that next hour, including myself, is what I'm going to do the next hour going to be the highest value of my time. And as I have begun to make that a rigorous lifestyle process, if you will, standard for how I operate my day, I become very clear on where to allocate my time and where not to care about it. Hmm. Wow. 
So let's talk about this idea of listening. Obviously, as somebody who hosts a podcast, um, this is profoundly interesting to me. And um, you identified four different types of listeners, the evaluating listener, probing listener, advising listener, and interpreting listener. Uh, What is the importance of that in a leadership role? And how does it play out in other areas of your life personally? Yeah, off air, you gave me permission to talk as long as I wanted on some stories, so I'll take that liberty now. It was Dr. Covey in his seminal book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that originally named those four types of listeners. And here's what I've learned from him and others and how I practice it, hopefully, in most of my interpersonal relationships. I think most leaders, formal leaders, are like me, where they've spent the majority of their career and their education being trained on how to be a more powerful communicator, be in influence mode. Be in persuasion mode, learn PowerPoint, keynote, master the microphone, speak from the stage, clarify your mission, your vision, your values, your systems, your processes, your strategy. We're always in sort of communication mode. As a result of that, I think we value speaking more than we value listening. Well, speaking is a great leadership competency, but so is listening. They're kind of tied. I think speaking is quite selfish. Listening is quite selfless. And the challenge with, I think, most of us is few of us are facing less choice in our life, right? Netflix isn't going to have less programming next year. We're all going to be facing an onslaught of distractions and a barrage to our attention span so that when when we're listening to someone, if you're like me, it's all I can do to pay attention to them for five seconds. I'm thinking about what time is my next podcast interview? Is my manuscript due? The American Express bill is due or overdue, right? Picking the dogs up from the groomers. What time is my mother-in-law landing for Easter? I mean, there's this barrage of information coming at us, and it's all I can do to even stand to look at you, let alone pay attention to you. This barrage of information, I think, has distracted everybody. Everybody's got ADD. Forget the clinical diagnosis. Everyone has an attention deficit. So the first advice I give people is when you're listening to someone, especially face-to-face, every two to three seconds, check back in. Recognize that you're going to be distracted. doesn't make you a bad person. doesn't make you a poor listener. It makes you a human in 2020 right now. So the first piece of advice is to check back in constantly, every few seconds, and resist the natural temptation to be distracted. The next advice I would give on being a better listener is to recognize that most of us listen with the intent to respond, not with the intent to understand. And if you accept that premise that most of us listen with the intent to respond, and it comes from a good place, it comes from your desire to help other people. The problem is it tends to manifest in questions, evaluating questions, probing questions where we tend to interrupt a lot because we're often on our own timeline, our own agenda, on our own field of experience, right? We're asking questions with the intent to help the other person, but from our own frame of reference. It's actually quite selfish. It comes from a good place, but most people don't want you to solve their problem for for them. They just want you to validate their feelings and listen to them empathically, especially in relationships. My wife does not want me to solve the conflict of what's happening (laughs) at Orange Theory. She doesn't want me to tell her so how heard. she totally, but it's not, not even gender specific, right? She doesn't want me to yeah. solve her problems. She just wants me to validate the insanity of how what she's feeling. So I think the first step as a listener is to recognize why are you asking people questions? Are you asking them for your need to know to respond? 
or their need for you to know. This is an important point. When someone passes away, what's the first question we usually ask about it? How did it happen? How did it happen? Was it a suicide? Was it cancer? Was it sudden? Did you have notice? Was it a train wreck? What does it matter? It doesn't matter. It's usually because we're uncomfortable. We're incapable of filling in the, the silence, right? We just, we, we got to kind of get in there and we're, we're not quite sure what to say. Don't say anything. Or maybe just say, I'm sorry. Or how are you? Maybe it was a relief. People will tell you what they need for you to know. So for your listeners, I'd really challenge you. If you want to become a better listener, check back in every two or three seconds. Recognize that distractions are human and they're not getting less. They're going to exponentiate. Second, recognize that when you're probing, when you're evaluating, when you're interpreting, it comes from a good place, but it's usually not helpful if you're trying to build relationships. Ask yourself the next time you're tempted to ask someone a question, why do I need to know that? Now, there's times to ask questions, right? When it comes to your inventory turns, your EBITDA, your P&L, whatever it is. There's times, you know, all of us have been taught to peel the onion and get to the root cause. I, I get that that's a skill, and I'm quite adept at that. That's not a skill to employ if you believe in the value of relationships. Let me share one final concept. Several years ago, I had the privilege of interviewing the famed linguistics professor and author, Dr. Deborah Tannen. If you were raised in the 70s and the 60s, it was required reading if you had an organizational communication degree. She's in residence at Georgetown. And Dr. Tannen taught me something that was absolutely um, a game changer, a pivot point in my communication. She said, the reason most people interrupt others is because every one of us has a sort of subconscious alarm clock that goes off in our minds when we think the other person should be done speaking. I think Tina should speak for 42 seconds. You think Tom should speak for 49 seconds. We both think Travis should not talk more than 10 seconds. You get the point. And that subconsciously in our minds, when that alarm clock goes off and we think that that person should stop, should stop speaking, we interrupt to either move it along, save ourselves from the awkward silence, or finally get them to finish talking. When in fact, what Dr. Tannen says is when you're tempted to interrupt someone, gently take your upper lip and touch it to your lower lip and close your mouth. Don't grimace. Don't even make it noticeable. Just gently touch your upper lip to your lower lip and count to 10. One, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And she says it's in that eight to ten seconds, if you can resist the temptation to interrupt the other person, the odds increase exponentially that they will land their point, stop talking, or perhaps disclose something especially vulnerable or important or salient that then allows you to figure out how you're going to move ahead. I think if people are better attuned to why they ask questions and when, recognize that they're on their own agenda, their own timeline, and their own field of reference, and it can minimize their interruptions. Those three things right there will transform the nature of all of your interpersonal relationships. Hmm. 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's funny because this is the reason that I don't have any scripted questions for my conversations other than how I'm going to start and how I'm going to end. And anytime somebody asks me to send questions, I basically send them a list and 
say, P.S., I'm not going to ask any of these. Right. <laughs> Can I share a, fi- a final thought to that? Please, yes. Uh, you, When you introduced me, you mentioned my role with Franklin Covey. I have been privileged to have a 24-year career here at Franklin Covey. Dr. Covey hired me, uh, groomed me from a young pup. He passed away seven years ago um, from the results of a brain accident from um, a bicycle um, um, incident. And whenever I'm interviewed on podcast or in conversations, I'm always asked, what's the one thing you learned from Dr. Covey? Now, Covey, Dr. Covey has written books that have sold, you know, 50 plus million copies, right? I mean, it's, he's an iconic leadership expert, the real deal. This man walked his talk. He was, his, his, his character was unimpeachable. And he taught me the difference between being efficient and being effective. And I write about this extensively in my book. He wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, not the book, the seven habits of highly efficient people. I never understood the difference between having an efficient mindset and an effective mindset until I joined the Franklin Covey Company. And it's something I still struggle with. I am probably like you somewhat, a very efficient person. I write, you know, I authored numerous books. I'm the parent of three children, podcasts, webinars, speaking around the nation, traveling around the world. I'm a very productive person. I get up at 4 a.m., I write. I'm the kind of guy that goes to Home Depot and I'm at the door at five o'clock before they open. And the marigolds are in my SUV. They're planted by 5.30. The car's washed by 7.30. And I'm ready for tennis by eight o'clock. And this is my life. It's actually served me very well in many areas of my life, this sort of urgency, addiction, efficiency, productivity. It's why I've been so successful in some areas of my life, this efficiency paradigm. The problem is I'm efficient in every area of my life. And you cannot be efficient in your relationships with people. You have to be effective. You have to move out of your efficiency paradigm into an effectiveness paradigm. Of the many things Dr. Covey said that are profound, he said, with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. With people, if you want to build mutually beneficial, high-trust relationships, especially as leaders, you need to slow down and move out of efficiency mode into effectiveness mode. When someone comes into your office, close your laptop, take off your glasses, turn off your phone. It may feel like a technique, and it is, but it will become common practice with you. You know, people do not quit their jobs. They quit bad leaders and bad cultures. And if you want to increase engagement in your organization, you'll teach your leaders yourself. You will become someone who loves their people because people do not quit leaders who love them. Like you, I have no shortage of opportunities to go work in other organizations. I can't. You know why? Because the CEO loves me. He loves my family. He loves me. And we're the opposite personalities. He's very conservative. I'm more liberal. He's very deliberate. I'm super precocious. He's very thoughtful. I'm incredibly in, in, in impulsive and impetuous. And But he loves me. I can't quit him. Sounds like a broke back mountain reference. But my point is in the professional <laughs> setting, I can't quit the guy because he loves me. And that's some great advice to your people is in organizations, it's hard to quit leaders who love them. And leaders who love their people slow down and they recognize when to be effective and when to be efficient. Huh. 
Well, I think the fact we're both happily married to women, so it wasn't a Brokeback <laughs> Mountain scenario. I just happened to have that soundtrack on my mind right now because of the the Joker, you know, Oscar, that kind of stuff. So keep going. Sorry. <laughs> so I think that that actually makes a, a perfect segue to what uh, you were talking about. You mentioned that you're impulsive and you actually wrote a chapter about carrying your own weather. And I could relate to that because I know myself well enough to know that I am. You said when we're triggered emotionally, it's easy to forget. We have a choice as to how we will respond. And there's one person in my life who knows how to trigger me and push those buttons more than anybody. And it's my mother. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's, uh, you know, this has been the work of a lifetime for me. So how do we, how do we deal with this? How do you, how do you get better at this? How did you me, get better at it? Yeah. Let me tell you how I got better. Cause I think everyone has their own path on this and I might be a bit of a pariah after this webcast, but Franklin Covey is well known for popularizing the value of mission statements, right? It happens to be the most trafficked page on our entire website, the mission statement builder. And Dr. Covey was famous for talking about that. You know, it never worked for me. I mean, I was single till I was 41. You would have asked me when I was 35 what my mission was. I don't know. More tennis, more beer, more trips to Italy. I don't know. I have no idea what my mission is, right? I still am not sure I know what my mission is. So the idea of creating a mission statement for me never resonated. It wasn't until I joined a conference where our other co-founder, Hiram Smith, who invented the Franklin Planner and the Franklin Planning Process, he gave a speech that changed my life. He said, You'll never really appreciate the ability to carry your own weather until you've identified your values. I'd heard the word values before, but I never really thought about what were my values. I don't know, world peace, equity, harmony, cash. I have no idea what I value. But I left that speech with Hiram Smith, who, by the way, passed about two months ago from a short bout with pancreatic cancer. Both of our founders have now passed. I went home and I spent several days and I decided what my values were going to be. I was 31 years old. And I, and I came back with seven of them. Purpose, health, integrity, positivity, abundance, and loyalty. Purpose, health, integrity, positivity, abundance, and loyalty. P-H-I-L-P-A-L. It spells Philpal. And I committed it to memory. My first value is purpose. I'm a religious person. I'm Catholic. I mentioned it's a big role in my life. I don't evangelize it to others other than my, my, my sons, but, I, but I'm trying to get clear on what my purpose is. The next is health and then integrity and loyalty. Loyalty is a very important value for me. I am extraordinarily loyal to people in my life, to my faults sometimes. It has gotten me in trouble being too loyal to some people positivity, abundance, and learning. So I went back and I committed these seven values to memory. I organized them so I could memorize Phil Pal. And now I make my decisions in life on my purpose, on my health, on my integrity, on loyalty, on positivity, on abundance, and learning. And the more I am clear on my values, the less you are able to hijack them from me. And the more I am clear on what I say yes to and what I say no to. And your ability now to ruin my day based on your mood, on your emotions, on your insecurities, on your jealousies is almost non-existent. You can't ruin my day. You can call me and tell me my house is burning down. Are my kids out? Is my wife out? Are the dogs out? No problem. We'll buy a new house. Hmm. Because it's not one of my values. One of those is not one of my values. I didn't say house or shelter. 
It's not a value. I'll go rent a condo somewhere or an apartment or stay at a hostel. My advice to your listeners is if you get clear on what your, I won't stay at a hostel, by the way. If you get clear what your values are, <laughs> if you get clear on your values, no one can hijack your emotional weather. You can carry your own weather. When someone walks into the office and they don't speak to me, I don't wonder if she's mad at me. I don't even care. I don't wonder if I'm in trouble. For all I know, she had a fight with her teenage daughter, right? It has nothing to do with me because my values are clear. I know what my value is because I know what my values are. Hey, it's Trini. I hope you're liking this episode of The Unmistakable Creative. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. So, it, it, you know, it's funny because I think you covered uh, multiple chapters throughout our conversation. So I, I, there, there's a few specifics that I want to go into. You talked about this idea of balancing courage and consideration. You said that courage is telling it like it is, calling things out, stepping up to difficult conversations and addressing tough issues. But when you overdo it, it comes across as bullying, brash and undiplomatic, um, both of which I think you and I have been just based on our conversation and me having read the book. Like I have had to have this line of, of you know, people will ask me to help them write. I have no ability to sugarcoat because I had a writing coach who told me she wouldn't sugarcoat. And that was how I was conditioned to write my books. Yeah, and sure, right. I appreciated that she did that because my books wouldn't have been what they were had it not been for her being that way. She told me she was going to be tough on me. That's why I chose her out of the three that I had options for. But I have noticed that if I give that same feedback to other people, they don't want to work with me. And you know, I kind of have to say, look, it's it's tough love. It's a criticism of the work and not you, but I definitely don't have the ability to sugarcoat. So with that in mind, let's talk about this idea of balancing the two. Yeah, I, I'm more like you than I'm not. And I think as I have become more senior in this organization, after I got married as a parent, I have had to become more mindful of balancing my unbridled courage with a stronger sense of consideration. I, I kind of went through my 20s and 30s, one of those people you meet that just tells it like it is, lets the chits fall where they may. And it's quite selfish, actually. It, it really is uh, a selfish communication style because if you care about people, then you care about leaving them better off than when they encountered you. And you recognize that words have massive impact on people. I mean, I, I am stunned at how many people in my life can repeat something I said to them 17 years ago. I don't even remember meeting them. Not because I'm arrogant, probably because I'm busy. But they will, they, they will verbatim repeat two things I said to them that either hurt their feelings or hopefully lifted them up. So my learning to share with your team has come hard for me. This was not easy for me. Is that Influential people are very deliberate and very careful about balancing courage with consideration. Another word for consideration is diplomacy. I think the greatest gift you can give anybody in your life is feedback on their blind spots. I may have mentioned this earlier. And that takes uh, moving outside of many of our comfort zones. It takes having high courage conversations where perhaps we feel awkward in them. We're not sure what to say. To the formal listeners on your podcast, I would say, as a leader, it is incumbent upon you to give people feedback in both a way that lifts them up and allows them to have their self-esteem intact. Because hard news can be delivered in soft ways if you care enough to do it that way. 
Life is short. All that matters, all that matters are our relationships. Not my Mercedes, not my home, not the vacation I took. All that matters is the legacy you leave with people. Have you lifted people up? Have you had an abundance mentality? Have you helped to make other people's lives better and easier based on what you've learned from those people who made your life better and easier? I mean, I don't know about you, but I am the product of people in my life who believed in me more than I believed in myself, who extended trust to me when I didn't earn it. And then sometimes when I didn't even deserve it. And I see now my job is to give back to everybody else in my life and those who will come into my life and to lift them up and help them understand behaviors that they're embroiled in, that are their blind spots. I mean, it's why people have these recurring behaviors in their 50s and their 60s still. is because I think, generally speaking, they never had a leader who sat them down and said, Patricia, I want to have a high-courage conversation with you. My intent is to help you see some behaviors that you're exhibiting that I think are inhibiting your ability to be more effective. I'm kind of nervous about this, and I might even use the wrong words, so you might have to give me a do-over, but my intent is to help you out and then kind of go into the conversation in a genteel way because, again, I'll say you can deliver tough news in soft ways. I think the problem is most of us, like everything in life, fall on one end of the litmus scale. We're either perhaps like you, perhaps not like you. We're so clear. We're so determined. We're so busy that we just kind of let it rip. And the person leaves very clear, but they think, well, gosh, that could have probably been said with the same effectiveness, <laughs> with a little more genteelness. Yeah. But they're very clear. I mean, no one leaves a meeting with me unclear about anything. Uh-huh. And then there is the opposite personality that's so accommodating, so sh- maybe um, shy or retiring, or perhaps one of their values is harmony. And they're so delicate and so diplomatic that the person leaves their office not realizing they were just fired. Mm. They have no idea. It takes a balance of courage and consideration, and it comes from practice. Yeah. It comes from role play. People will say to me all the time, well, Scott, it's easy for you. Yeah, I came out of the womb having high courage conversations. No, I didn't. I screwed up the first 400 of them. It's why my HR file is an expandable folder, right? This was not easy for me. I screwed up a couple hundred of them, but I role-played them with uh, HR. I role-played them with, with wise friends in my life and got better and better at it. And I realized that my body language sometimes has an impact as well. You can tell I'm a very passionate person. For some reason, it comes out always looking like I'm angry or stern. I'm rarely angry. I'm just clear. I'm just clear. And so I have to sometimes role play feedback in front of a mirror so I recognize what are the facial expressions, not, not by trying to be artificial, but w- how do I make it comfortable for the other person to receive my feedback so that both they're crystal clear on expectations and that they feel better off from having me delivered that feedback. It's a high standard, but I think it's a gift everyone deserves in every aspect of their life. Let me end this thought with this quote. This quote has, has had a massive impact on me from Blaine Lee. Um, Nearly all, if not all, conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. And the more we're willing to clarify expectations, clarify points with other people, we give them a huge gift and we minimize so much conflict in my life. I repeat it 
multiple times a day. I've said it on this podcast probably three times, but I want people to inventory the conflict in your life. And if you will clarify expectations, yours, and allow them to clarify theirs, you will nearly eliminate the conflict in your life. Okay, let's talk about results. I know you have about 10 minutes here, so there are two things I want to talk about when it comes to results. Um, When it comes to vision, you've talked about crafting a vision within reach. Part of the reason that struck me is because I feel that I often, uh, and myself have done it, see people create very unrealistic goals based on possibility instead of probability. So yeah, the example I always come back to is something my mentor said. He said, you know, um, you know, he said, look, he said, you know, is it probable that he and I could go and make the Olympics? I was like, yeah, possibly if we, you know, entered curling. Um, and even then, it's not likely. Uh, is it probable? Probably not. And so I wonder when you think about crafting a vision within reach, how do you do that, keeping both probability and possibility in mind, and yet remaining optimistic enough to try for something big? Such an elegant question. I'm going to pull on a couple of different resources that I've learned. You know, Franklin Covey here, we spend a lot of our time focused on how to create corporate goals. You know, we call them WIGs, wildly important goals. It comes from our friendship with Jim Collins, of course, who, who wrote Built to Last, and he popularized the phrase BHAGs, right? Big, hairy, audacious goals. A simple formula has helped me tremendously, and that's when you craft a goal in your life, they should always fall into the model of from X to Y by when, from X to Y by when. It might be a customer service goal. It might be a weight loss goal. It might be a marriage goal. It might be a FICO credit score goal, whatever it is, from X to Y by when. I think that's a very valuable formula. I think another reason why so often we create these aspirational goals for us is for those of us who have worked in and have been deeply enculturated in organizations especially in the last 20 years where a sort of genre of leadership is that a lot of entrepreneurial companies are led by high-performance CEOs, right? They're, they're high-performance athletes. They climb the Matterhorn. They go to Everest. They run you know, Kona Ironman. These high-performing CEOs set these goals that are impossible to reach because they're, in their own life, they set these Herculean goals for themselves. And I think in our personal lives, this spills over because in our professional lives, we're set up for failure because if you win, you lose. If you win, you lose. What I mean by that, if you accomplished the goal, then it must have been set too low. You phoned it in. When in fact, there's enormous psychology to calibrating goals, both at the organizational level, the division level, the team level, and in your personal life is I think there's genius that I'm still searching for to find that stretch goal that requires you to do more than phone it in. It requires you to do more than just give extraordinary effort. You have to give you know, superb effort, but it's realistic that if you do achieve it, you win. I think there's some, some insight in what I said about if you win, you lose. I just say that the leaders are the goals that you've set stretch goals, but are they achievable? Because everybody wants to win. And if people can't win in your company, they will go somewhere else where they can win. So set goals that are accomplishable. Don't celebrate coming to work on time at the office. I mean, get a grip, right? But set goals that are stretch goals. But I I interviewed someone, um, Jay Papazan, who co-wrote the book, 
the one thing, right? This is um, from Gary Keller, from Keller Williams. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal book. It's the reason why this book sells, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies. And, and one of their key premises is this idea of goal setting to the now. Goal setting to the now. And they take it back, and I may, I may slaughter this, but basically, what are your five-year goals? What are your one-year goals? What is like your one-month goal, your one-week goal, your goal for today, and then your goal right now? Five years, one year, one month, one week, one day, one hour, one now. It's called goal setting to the now. If you want to launch a podcast, if you want to increase your FICO score, if you want to save your marriage, if you want to lose 10 pounds, whatever your goal is, what are you going to do right now? Like the moment this podcast ends, or perhaps pause this podcast and come back to it in five minutes because you signed up for Experian to check your credit score. Or you're going to have a garage sale on Saturday and raise $400 and pay off your visa bill to lower your debt-to-income ratio. Whatever your action is, what are you going to do right now? And practicing that principle, goal setting to the now, combining with setting goals in my life that are achievable with this from X to Y by win formula, I think if you can bring some semblance of those three things in your life, like me, it's worked enormously well. Well, I think that makes a, a perfect setup for my final few questions. So one of the things you talk about in the book is this sort of continuous need for improvement or this continuous improvement idea. And I think it's the blessing and the curse of the world that we live in and, and the work that people like you do and people like I do um, is that it can feel like there is no end point to this. And, you know, Ryan Holiday um, was here talking recently about his most recent book, which actually, you know, hit number one on the Wall Street uh, Journal or the you know, New York Times bestseller list after I'm eight obs- books. I am obsessed with stillness is the key. Yeah. So there's something that he said in that conversation with me that I, I really had stayed with me. He said, you know, it's this sort of next level of accomplishment, right? He said, you know, you basically think, oh, you know, it's not a book deal with the publisher, it's the New York Times bestseller list. And I know that I've experienced this firsthand. It's this hedonic adaptation at work where the goalpost keeps moving. And one thing he said is that that belief drives a lot of accomplishment, and it's good in the aggregate because he said if everybody wanted to stay senator, nobody would run for president. But he said on the individual level, it is a lie um, that it doesn't lead to the satisfaction that you think it will. So as somebody who literally has built, you know, worked at a company that pretty much drives this belief that allows us to accomplish, I mean, your work actually fuels that in a lot of ways. And I don't mean that as a, as an insult. I, I mean that, you know, as a, as a reality, it, it's a, you know, I mean, obviously I've consumed a lot of your work. Um, so how do we deal with that tension between those two things? You know, how do you find satisfaction while at the same time maintaining this drive to accomplish what you want to accomplish? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, uh, it's, 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 it's the you know, penultimate question in our lives, right? Is you'll never know how much is enough until you've defined how much is enough. Love, adoration, praise, money, stature, moving up. You'll never have enough until you've defined how much is enough. That should haunt all of us. Because like you, right? You want more subscribers. Like me, I want more, more readers and more, more, more. And it can be an insatiable quest. You know, Seth Godin is a friend of mine, dear friend of mine. I've been blessed to have Seth in my life. His works are so inspirational to me. He's so practical and real, authentic. I, I'm an I'm a unmitigated Seth fan. 
been been his office several times where he's talked about, you know, the power of being reckless versus the power of being fearless. And that haunts me a lot too, is really knowing, you know, when am I being reckless and when am I being fearless and fearless to further my influence, fearless to further my impact versus perhaps reckless in my mind might be, I just want more fame. I just want more adoration. I just want more of the spotlight. Am I doing this to help others versus doing this to help myself? I mean, everyone has their own questions. The more you are clear on what you value, I think the more you're clear on what you pursue and what you don't. I mean, if if I think about my life right now, you know, I'm on the rise a bit and I'm sure I'm going to be humbled a lot. But at the end of the day, I do think that my mission perhaps I'm uncovering it in real time right now, is as father and provider to my kids and as spouse to my wife. And that needs to come at the head of everything. And I need to make sure that my time is aligned with both my values and what is my purpose, what my mission is. And I, to your point, I love Ryan Holiday's book, Stillness is the Key. I interviewed him as well. Prophetic thinking around the quiet space in our lives and, uh, and, and making, making room for that. Another point that I'll share from Seth is I like Seth's motivation around just ship it. You know, I think he wrote a book called Just Ship It, something like that. And he really inspired me to kind of move outside my comfort zone and care less what people think about me. I care a lot what my wife thinks about me. I care what my priest thinks about me and my creator and my sons. And to some extent, my mother-in-law and father-in-law. And probably to a lesser extent, my CEO. Beyond that, I don't care a lot what people think about me. And so with that, not, not in an arrogant way, in a bit of a liberating way, right? I'm sure like you, there are, there are blog posts dedicated to my hair. There's blog posts dedicated to I'm a hack and I'm a poser and all that. It doesn't, even, it doesn't even impact me. I don't even read it anymore because I'm just trying to ship it. And I'm trying to do more to help everybody else learn from the messes that I've been in. And I think that's working. So my advice in the book is, you know what? Do less time reading, less time listening and more time writing, and more time broadcasting. Go get your own damn podcast. Go write your own book. Go develop your own conference. Don't just be a passive consumer, but put yourself out there. Some of my best learning were my first 30 LinkedIn articles. Oh my gosh, I look back now, and I think, what was I thinking? But, it, but one thing led to another, and the more I put myself out there, the more I learned what my talents were, what my passions were, it helped me to kind of congeal my thoughts, like what do I believe to be true and what do I believe not to be true? The world's not black and white. And so, a, but it, in this gray area we live in, I think allows us to be a little bit situationally chameleons. That's good sometimes and bad sometimes. So I would encourage your people to be less reckless and more fearless. Define how much is enough. So you decide when you have enough and do less consuming in more producing. Hmm. But of course, wow. listen to your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think generosity. I would go back to having abundance mentality. I think that my grandmother's impact on my life has been um, indelible. She couldn't afford the iron lung, yet she paid for the iron lung for her son and said, go give it to someone else. And that has created in me, I hope, a legacy of lifting others up, 
providing opportunity for others, uh, not being a malcon- not, not being complacent, right? I mean, I have to manage my own career. I have to create my own press. No one's going to do it for me alone. But having a life of abundance and keeping other people in mind and lifting others up along the way, that will be the greatest legacy anybody can ever give someone else. Amazing. Relief. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Um, where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything else that you're up to? Well, my wife says, where can you not find me? She thinks I'm way overexposed. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn. Love to have you follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram. You can obviously, you know, Google Franklin Covey on leadership for Scott Miller. The book is Management Mess, Leadership Success. The site is messtosuccess.com. So it's kind of hard to escape me if you just Google Scott Miller and Franklin Covey these days. Mm, amazing. And To my wife's horror. <laughs> <laughs> and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.